For too many years, families of children with devastating illnesses have felt helpless as they watched their child suffer. Today, they're taking matters into their own hands and finally finding relief, treating their child with cannabis. These are their stories. Hey guys, welcome. Welcome to another episode. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in. Yes, Nina. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, we have a great guest tonight uh, coming from us from DC, outside of DC. Um, she is Dr. Paloma Leifelt. She serves as a medical science and patient liaison for Viero Health. Uh, she also has 10 years of experience in psychiatric research, teaching, and community outreach. And she actually works for Viero um, Dispensary in what you handle all of the dispensaries or just the one in the East Coast? I work with providers all on the East Coast and Minnesota, but we're actually about to open our, our first Maryland dispensary, Green Goods, and I'm going to be the clinical director there. Wow. So trying to get in everywhere, right? Yeah, congrats. <laughs> congrats and welcome aboard. Thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. I feel like I finally made it. I'm on the Love and Cannabis podcast. <laughs> Very happy. <laughs> Very happy to be here with you guys. Well, that's nice. awesome. Thank it's all for that. the love. It's all for the love of the plant and the people we serve. <laughs> so, absolutely. Now, let me ask a question. Like, I mean, thinking, I'm looking at your background. So, how did you go from psychiatric research to cannabis? I mean, there is, you know, a bridge between the two, but still, like, I know when you went to medical school, I don't think you were thinking about cannabis at some point, were you? I actually was thinking about cannabis. Ooh. I actually consider myself, yeah. Oh, this is interesting. I, uh, That's new for in, us. In, yes, right? exactly. <laughs> I, in all of my education, or I like to call it my comp- uh, compilation of student loans. Oh. Um, <laughs> I've, right? Uh, oh, my gosh. I know. I my, know. My FAFSA, but um, I've always, in, in, in undergrad, I actually wrote my honors thesis in psychology on delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. Wow. So I have always been fascinated with the plant. So in grad school, in, uh, in neuroscience classes, in medical school, I always, you know, had an adjunct task going on at the same time, learning about the endocannabinoid system, learning about the neurobiology at the same time, and just being amazed as I, as I progressed further and further in my education that I, that I, we weren't learning about this. I was just looking, I was sharing some other, <clears throat> some notes that I had for, with my medical edu- education team about how I was taught about cannabis. I actually have the notes, I'll share them with you guys, but as a drug of abuse, right next to cocaine, right next to heroin, mm-hmm. talking about what signs to look for in the emergency room. You know, a patient comes in with red eyes, they can be very combative, uh, really emulating or, you know, <laughs> solidifying that reaper madness yes. attitude that has been ingrained in American culture since the 1930s. And that's what we're still talking about today. Only 13% of United States medical schools even teach about the endocannabinoid system. And I, I know I'm preaching the choir here, but there are so many reasons for that. We were talking about it. it you can't just be a cannabis researcher or a cannabis educator. You have to be making policy you have to go back to 1850 mm-hmm. when cannabis was in the pharmacopoeia for yes. every physician you have to know exactly why cannabis isn't available to us as a medication today 
that that's amazing when you think about that. I mean, something that could have been helping people all this time has just been like just removed, like written off in history and then prevented from anyone ever seeing or even talking about it again. Like, how does that happen? It happens because of a very small group of racist and xenophobic legislators in the 1930s that prohibited, federally prohibited and criminalized cannabis. And this is what, you know, we, we aren't taught about in medical school or any, any school that pharmacy school, nursing school, it's because of this small group of people that this medication is no longer available to practicing clinicians today. It's because of the Mexican Revolution, when this is the first time that the United States saw the recreational use of cannabis. And because of that, it has a very xenophobic, that's why I never will use the word marijuana, because mm-hmm. of the very xenophobic tone it has. That's yes. what people would call what, what the immigrants were, were using. And from there, the legislators made all these claims about how cannabis made uh, good men into bad men and reefer madness following that. And then the very, and then the, the so-called war on drugs, that followed that. I mean, we can talk about the history of this plant for, for five podcasts, but that is why today I have a master's degree. I have my medical degree and I was never taught about this, this plant of over 113 medications. You can't give someone uh, an, a leave and say, here, go treat PTSD, go treat anxiety, go treat different epileptic disorders. Yes, It's just not possible. There is no single drug agent out there that has the scope of cannabis plant does. Yeah, I was reading a, um, an article from um, Bonnie Goldstein, and basically it basically said it, it basically said what you're stating. I think it was, what is it called? Multi-pharmacological, meaning that it does multiple things for, they named like all this um, anti-epileptic drugs, like it was Depico, Amphi, all those drugs. And they were saying it has similar actions to all these um, pharmaceutical meds. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> that whoa, is, is, whoa is right. I was like, I mean, okay. And, and, and talk about side effects medications of Depakote. Oh, yeah. oh, we know firsthand. We know, we know. We know firsthand. Uh, that is no way to go through life. And unfortunately, there are people that need to be on particular medications and, and the side effects are bad and, and you know, and, and it interfere with quality of life. But sometimes that's the only option. But we, we know, and you guys know firsthand that that's just not the case. People can replace or use Less, lesser doses yes, of lesser their doses. anti-epileptic medications. Yes. People on, in, on pain medications, they can use lesser um, doses of their opiates. So why isn't this taught about in medical school when 113 people are dying every day from the opioid crisis? When people are experiencing detrimental side effects from anti-epileptic medications, they're prescribed to them by you know, physicians with 20 years of training. Yes, yes. That's true. I mean, we have one of the top the top neurologists in, in New York City. So, yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. So, But doesn't that open a door now that I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, you know, got my mind rolling right now, open the door for dispensaries or even license holders to open up their own educational institutions and learning platforms? There are a lot of, there. that's a great question. There are a lot of great, educational platforms out there but you know you can't teach an old doctor new tricks <laughs> i don't think i've ever said that before but you can you know <laughs> it's literally like it's literally like your neurologist or your top rated neurologist um 
anti-epileptic medications. But it would be the same thing if he just didn't show up on the day that he was talking about. We were learning about the central nervous system. It's the same thing for these doctors. They don't understand what the endocannabinoid system is. It's a mythical system when, it, in fact, it's one of the organ systems in our body that literally is responsible for the balance. It interacts with our central nervous system, our cardiovascular system, our immune system, everything. So it's, it's a disservice to physicians and to their patients to not be able to have the knowledge of this of this plant. And again, it's not a panacea. It's not going to work for everybody. Of course. And I think it's incredibly important to say that as well. But for the people it does work for, and it, and it works for so many people, <laughs> why isn't it available? Because it's life, it could be life-changing. I, I think that's what the problem is. When you want to create dependency, you can't give them a way out. You just got to keep them away on that, that what is that called? The Ferris wheel. wheel. Yep, just that hamster wheel. Keep it coming. Keep them going. So now I'm just thinking, like, what is your role with VRO? Like, what do you do with them? I, I see the title. I can, I can assume based on the title, but what is your day-to-day like? So I am the, my, my title is director of medical education. So mm. I go out and Beautiful. I preach the, preach the cannabis gospel. Wow. I, like to call it. I, I, I come from a teaching background and a research background. So I go out and I talk to other physicians. Um, a, a lot of the times physicians, let's be honest, will only listen to other physicians. Absolutely. And with them, yeah, which is detrimental to so many patients. But, you know, what physicians do listen to they won't listen to me just saying cannabis is medicine at work. What they do listen to is research. And at, at my company, we have really dedicated ourselves being a physician-led company to performing that research so we can bring them peer-reviewed journal articles saying this is not, you know, some, some made-up plant. This is not about people getting high. We have a $3.8 million grant that we run out of one of our dispensaries in White Plains, New York, dealing with chronic pain patients on intractable pain, on the highest dose of opiates, and we're studying how cannabis can be used to also work with their pain. And again, pain is the tip of the iceberg. Cannabis works for so many different diseases, and that's why for mental health professionals, for neurologists, they need to have this research on their front door because, unfortunately, they have to go back to school, and that's hard to get people to do as well. So that's a huge part of my job is teaching other doctors about the many, many benefits of cannabis. Another part is that I am the co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. Um, as I've said, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, but being in the cannabis industry, I also am an activist, and I also want to be involved with policy. In Maryland, we just hosted uh, an expungement clinic at one of our dispensary partners, and we expunged the records of 45 people wow. for nonviolent cannabis offenses. Oh, it's amazing yeah. to hear. It's amazing to hear. Nice, nice. But this needs to be done everywhere, everywhere. We call it, everyone puts, quote, war on drugs in parentheses for a reason. It wasn't a war on, on drugs at all. It disproportionately affected black and brown communities. And this is another reason that I go out and tell this too to different physicians and other healthcare practitioners. Cause they always ask me, okay, if this is such a, a great plant, why didn't we learn about it? And I say, let's go back to 1850, 1930s and learn about it right there. And once, once you really do your research, you understand why you aren't taught about it in medical school, why it's a schedule one substance still today in 2020. 
Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Mind-boggling. So what has been the reception, yeah, especially as it relates to the the social equity, the inclusion, you know, what? how other people have been receptive, yeah, so people yeah. your peers have been speaking to, or even other uh, industry leaders, other dispensary owners. I mean, are they on board with doing this, or is it just, just smoke and mirrors? That's a great question. I would like to, I'm an optimist, that you have to be, um, I would like to think that everybody that's in the cannabis industry has this. You have to be, you have to be part policymaker and and work for the people that are still incarcerated for the the plant that you're making a profit off of. And Absolutely. a lot of cannabis companies have dedicated part of their their um, revenue and the work that they do to social justice and equity specifically. I really, you know, we're gonna. This isn't a one-off thing, doing one expungement clinic. This is something that needs to be replicated in all states that, that all states across the country. So um, I, <laughs> I always talk to other people that I work with in different, in different uh, cannabis companies and tell them, you know, don't just put your money where your mouth is. Don't just do this one thing. Go out. Go out into the community. Work with organizations like Last Prisoner Project. Work with trade organizations like NCIA. Be on Capitol Hill and lobby. Tell our regulators what cannabis is, how it has helped all these people, and <clears throat> the people that do it, it uh, are truly amazing. Yeah, I mean, from our experience, we had to go upstate to New York and Albany. Um, Cure Leaf had sponsored our family to go up there to speak on behalf on expanding the medical marijuana program in New York so it, um, that we could have more dispensaries because we, we were hearing stories of how people are traveling two hours one way to get medicine and traveling two hours ago the other way I'm to go home. I'm like, that's crazy. So again, I mean, just thinking about this social equity, it seems like something that should be so humane is now being almost like a, a, a burden for companies to put together. And it's like painful for them because they've never thought of that. Now, beyond that, what about training? What about, the education for those who do come out and are looking for opportunities in the industry where it's, where it's kind of banished them, sent them to prison, and now they're coming back and say, look, I want to go back, but I want to do it the right way. I want to do it legit. Is there opportunities for them to be educated, to be trained in how to become a grower, how to be uh, to become a mm-hmm. processor, a manufacturer, or even run their own business? Is there incubators Absolutely. around for that? We, yeah. we encourage... It- you can't be in the industry and not encourage people that were put in jail for the things that you're making a profit out of, in my opinion, and I hope in, in most people's opinions, to get people back in to the cannabis industry that, that is the reason that put them in jail in the first yes. place is almost, you know, it, it should be that way for everybody. And there are a lot of people that have, at Last Prisoner Project, again, I'll mention them, they're wonderful placing people that uh, were formerly incarcerated back into the industry. Um, it's something that should be done across the country, 100%. So my question is, in terms of how do we do this? Because we are finding a lot of people, particularly people of color, because they may have family members who have went to jail for this, they're very hesitant to even use this medically. So what can we do to kind of, like you were saying, gear them back in? I think that's the million dollar question, yeah. right? I mean, I, I, unfortunately, there's still a fear and a stigma of 
having cannabis, even if you have your medical card. Yes. yes. Because <laughs> even if you have your medical card, I encourage everybody to have their medical card just to protect themselves. If you are using cannabis to have a product that's third party tested, to have a card in case you're pulled over and have that in your possession. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because at the, at the end of the day, the stigma is very much alive. Mm-hmm. And and the only way to break that stigma, and I don't want to sound cliche, but it's education. And education, not just to our doctors, but to our legislators, to people in, at the dispensary level, because that, that's, a, that's a real fear, and that's a completely justified fear. People are getting arrested for cannabis today, to the same thing that people are selling legally in states where cannabis is recreationally legal. So it's... it's I, I don't why I, I can't even think of the word. It's an inane that that's still happening. And it's a name that people today are still being arrested because of the color of their skin for nonviolent crime. Nonviolent. And do the new laws, they're releasing the, crim- the violent criminals. I'm, I'm confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Now, can you walk us through? I'm a new patient. I just got my card. I walk into the dispensary. What do I do? <laughs> Sure. Well, hopefully you have a great physician that guided you on the way, like Dr. Chin. Yeah, um, yeah, Dr. Chin. <laughs> yay, Dr. Chin. If you are, if you come to one of uh, Bureau Health dispensaries in New York, we have a licensed um, pharmacist that will walk you through the entire process. You know, I think that we've heard a million times, start low and go slow when it comes to our THC content. But that's just the beginning of this long journey, which is cannabis. Um, People that are new patients don't even know about the amazing different delivery forms of cannabis. That's where you start. So you learn exactly based on what condition you have. For a chronic pain patient that has pain that lasts throughout the day, maybe a 5 out of 10, starting with um, an oral formulation. So that's either a tincture, an oral solution, or a gel capsule. And that lasts for about four to eight hours. And let's talk about side effects. Nobody that has chronic pain is going to take one NSAID or one Advil, one Aleve. You're taking, you know, five of these if you have chronic back pain or arthritis or another debilitating disease. And these side effects are detrimental, especially to the aging population. So what would happen if you go into the dispensary, the pharmacist will sit down, take the time to really understand your history of cannabis, if you've experienced any different side effects from using cannabis before, what other medications you're on, and from there, once you pick your form of delivery, let's say we do a soft gel capsule, you take that home. It's important as a new cannabis patient to have a journal and really understand what's going on with your body. For instance, little factoids like, did you know if you take your cannabis with a high-fat meal, something called bioavailability or how strong it is in your body increases by almost 14 times. Oh, yeah. Oh, we learned the hard way. <laughs> Trust us. <laughs> we learned the hard way. Our son was our little lab rat for this, so we know. Yeah, so we, I think my mom was babysitting eight in one point, and I think he had some type of lunch with cream cheese. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, I think he, he, I wasn't there, but I think he ate a lot of it, and then she gave him, his his um CBD even though it he was small then you know so even though it did have the legal upper limit but she texts me she's like he can't stop laughing he's hysterical oh my god <laughs> okay CPS oh my, but but think about that you had to find that out on yourself yeah by yourself yeah 
because your do- your doctor or, or we weren't taught about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics <laughs> of cannabis. Yep. So so you know it's almost impossible for us to know. So it, that's another reason why it's so necessary to have good clinical research out there, so mm-hmm. you could avoid things like that. Mm-hmm. Nobody would do. Nobody would would know. Everybody would know that about a diabetic medication or an anti-inflammatory medication, but unfortunately. Clinicians just don't know right now, or they're, they're starting to learn, but unfortunately, the research just hasn't been out there. And that's another reason that the federal illegality is so antiquated and inane in this day and age when so many people are benefiting from the plant. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's all money in this situation. So, I, for, so a number of your patients, what are the numbers? I mean, do you guys keep data on them and saying, okay, we have. Out of a uh, hundred our patients, ten or twenty percent of them are here for pain. Another here is for insomnia. Another one's here for like migraines. Like, do you have data that you're collecting on your patients and understanding who they are and where they are? Their diagnosis. And so time? that's a great question. So around the country, just epidemiological data on cannabis patients. Chronic pain is number one. But can you guys guess what number two is? The number two uh, certified qualifying condition across the country. Post traumatic stress syndrome, maybe. I'm thinking. You, of, I'm you, thinking you got it. You got it. <laughs> That's good. You got it. That's Which really is good. Because you know we talk we talk about chronic pain being an epidemic, but mental health issues, anxiety, PTSD with our veterans, it's another epidemic. And we talk about the antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications that are prescribed. And the side effects of those, just like so many other traditional pharmaceuticals that we see, are detrimental and interfere with quality of life. So these patients that have been suffering with PTSD for years, we're talking about our veterans, one in three veterans that return from the Iraq war have PTSD. And that the medication just isn't working for them. It's making them zombies a lot of the time. It's interfering with their daily living. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are fed up. Yeah, so PTSD is number two, but, but to your question, we have, we're unique in that we're filling in the gaps that would be available to any other medication that was given to a patient. And we're doing that by post-surveillance marketing. We have a 24 seven adverse event hotline in with, with any side effects that they're experiencing. And it will be connected to a pharmacist or a physician so that oh. they can relay those. And that's incredibly important for first-time patients specifically yes. because you do not want, you know, a 57-year-old person with chronic pain experiencing paranoia side effects. I mean, no. what is worse than that? Oh, And yeah. so we, we have ways, right? <laughs> what is worse than that? And people that will do that, they will never come back to Canvas if that's their no, experience. No, never. Yeah, one negative experience and then that will be it. It's like, oh, the- but this is what I thought it would happen anyway. So, yep, nope. Yeah. Yeah, that's just to reinforce exactly. them not wanting to do it. So um, as you're dealing with, you know, all these things that are coming at you in the sense of these patients with all these ailments, has the PTSD part of it, because something Nina had mentioned before, parents who are dealing with children with these disabilities and yeah. the stress of, you know, dealing with that from the day-to-day life where you have to make some real hard decisions, because I know from the clinical um, perspective, you may not know what's going on in the home. You know, they come to you and say, hey, look, I'm stressed. I'm going through all these things. But they're not really expressing, like, 
you know, I've watched my son have a seizure in a tub while I'm mm-hmm. giving a bath. All trauma. I've watched my son collapse, um, you know, hit his head first, bleeding, you know, in the hospital. My husband or wife left me. You know, all these things that are just, you know, I guess traumatic. Yeah, so for me, I know we, we think of PTSD as, okay, uh, like you said, the vets or someone was in a car accident. And I think we had one um, guest on our show, and we was like, PTSD could be someone who had, like, a traumatic labor or someone who has a child with a significant disability and they have constant... Someone who went through domestic, domestic abuse. Exactly. Somebody that, that witnessed, you know, the Twin Towers falling. Exactly. There are so many... And there we don't, are so many people that suffer from anxiety and PTSD. Yeah. It's a great point. And they don't think that that was trauma. Like, oh, me, I find I have PTSD from all the seizures that when he was younger that I had to witness. And of sometimes, course. like, even he's better now, but, like, I get these flashbacks of him because he used to have these things called drop seizures. And it was just he was just oh stand there and then, boom, hit the ground. And he's he doesn't do that anymore. But then, like, I'll get, like, a he's at the playground, and I'll get, like, these little flashes of him just dropping. Yeah, and then you get, like, over, you know, become that hawk mom just standing next to him wondering when he's going to fall. And it's, like, it builds the stress and stress, and it's to the point where you, like, come home, you're, like, shaking. Like, oh. So I had, yeah, so I had to start using um CBD and, and actually in TAC at night. To help me, mm-hmm. yeah, sleep and everything. Well, what, one great, one great benefit, and maybe tell me if you've experienced this. One, I mean, it works. And 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 first of all, I'm so sorry that you have experienced that, and you're, and you, I'd be surprised if you didn't have those symptoms to be dealing with something like that. Yeah. Um, PTSD. One of the biggest um, symptoms is having these horrible flashback nightmares, mm-hmm. and THC. Oh, wow. THC actually shortens your REM sleep, your rapid eye movement sleep, which is where you dream. And because of that, people report that when they use the um, when they use cannabis for sleep, it actually reduces a lot of those nightmares that are completely debilitating. These aren't like being chased down a hallway nightmares. These are reliving experiences and very traumatic and really interfere with your sleep. Did you find any benefit from that? Absolutely. In that regard? Absolutely. So this is the thing. So I have suffered from um, night terrors. And, you know, what night terrors are is basically is like a very active, active dream. Like, so once I start with it, with I take I take a pull of my cannabis, I sleep well, I don't have a night terror. It, yeah, I, I mean, like you said, that's amazing. And, and think about the, the ramifications of our current state with our pandemic, what that's going to do for our mental health and yeah. community as a country, mm-hmm. as a world. They're going to be so, I mean, anxiety and mental health issues are already an epidemic, but think about how much that's going to be amplified. It is amplified. Nice. And no, and not everybody's going to walk around on Xanax or benzodiazepines or antidepressants. You know, it's it's unfortunate, you know, in certifying physicians and, and psychiatrists, there are a lot more mental health professionals coming on board because they don't want their patients to have that, that, bevy of side effects. They don't want their patients to, to change their personality or to lose interest in, in things because yeah. of the medications that and they're on. A lot of the our essential workers, our nurses, our doctors, the ones that were there in the thick of the pandemic, a lot of them are still not right. A lot of them were telling Absolutely. me, I'm, I'm not right. Like, I just, like, the flashbacks, I, I mean, it was hell. And they, they all had, all of them, were the ones that were, like, to admitted or not they have some some form of ptsd from what they witnessed during that time 
100%. And the aftershocks from this, yes, you know, yes. when we, when hopefully we come out of it, you know, are going to be, you know, uh, 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 they're going to last a long time. There's going to be a mental health epidemic even more so than before. And I know a lot of people that have cannabis in their toolkit are turning to it. Um, but hopefully by then we'll be able to have it available to everyone that needs it. At least I hope so. I mean, why, why is it okay for people to drink a bottle of vodka when they're under a lot of stress or take these benzodiazepines that are completely debilitating? People can't drive. People have an altered state. They can't go to work next day. They get in crashes. Don't even talk about the liver toxicity and the deaths per year. I mean, look, look at what, what people do to deal with stress in, in the United States specifically. Mm. Pharmaceuticals, alcohol, and tobacco. Yes, yes. the three, oh, three sins. Right. Right. And again, I'm not going to say that you that people – there are people that need pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals are not the devil. People no, need medication. But – not everybody needs the highest dose of opiates or the highest dose of antidepressants when there's a plant out there that can act as, as an adjunct therapy to so many of these different diseases that so many different Americans and people in the world have to deal with. Agreed. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, but, no, that's why you're here. <laughs> we need to hear this. I mean, we really do need to yeah. hear this. It's reality. So, um, oh, God, it's like that 30-minute mark, and it's like, hmm. We need to continue this conversation. Is it all right if we bring you back on? Because, I mean, we just started getting to the like to the meat to the till before we get to the bone of this. Because uh, I, I mean, I have so many questions. Would it be all right if we have you come back on? I would love to. I'm, I'm, I feel honored that you guys are asking. Oh, I, we, we appreciate we you. Talk, we can talk. We can talk about. So, I mean, again, you guys are the same way. You can't just talk about. You can't go on a on a podcast and just talk about. The medicinal benefits. You have to talk about why we can't. Everyone can't experience the medicinal benefits of cannabis. Yeah. Why it is so federally illegal? You know, I'm working with a on a white paper right now with one of my colleagues to present to legislators on medical cannabis. Here, Senator, you you can't you can't deny peer reviewed scholarly journal articles that cannabis reduces chronic pain symptoms. That people that use it can reduce their opioid dose. That people that use it are experiencing less PTSD symptoms. There is no way you can deny good science. There just isn't. So, yes, we have much more work to do, and many more conversations need to be had. I'm very happy that you guys invited me here. It's great to speak with you both. Yes, and and again, oh, my God, I'm I'm almost, like, tempted to say, you know what, we're going to keep you here. But respecting the time (laughs) and we did allocate 30 minutes but we definitely want to have you come on board back on board and uh really continue this conversation because as you mentioned you know sitting in front of these legislators these congressmen about this i'm like i have my son who's living proof he's living proof you and you know they can't say that they don't have anyone in their family who's maybe suffering that could be benefiting from it would you keep that from them? Exactly. So in the next episode, we'll talk about our experience with our senator. So, yeah. yeah. That we'll was a, that's that an interesting in, thing, too. Experience. So, so yeah, tune gonna, in for I that. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. And then also we want to really dive into um, how much of an effect you guys have been having on the communities. Um, where do you have your licenses in other states? Uh, and then what is the difference between the New York license versus other states? Because we... 
uh, we live in New York, so we know. <laughs> but not everybody else knows what's going on with the changes Got that are coming it. around the corner, right? Got it. Yeah. All right, Dr. Leifel, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your knowledge, and we are definitely, definitely looking forward to having you back on soon. I appreciate you both. This seemed like a five-minute conversation. Yes. Great speaking of like-minded individuals. Um, let's let join me. I know you guys are already preaching the cannabis gospel, but let's let's remind everyone why we are where we are. Today. Yes, definitely. And I'm going to be looking forward to coming out somewhere and seeing you uh, speaking or being participating in something because um, uh, we are definitely looking to be in the industry full-heartedly and to help other families as well. With just not just our message, but you know, participating and even partnering up with someone in um, you know making sure everybody has access um, to this medicine. I feel it. I feel it. Thank you both so much. Thank you again for being on. Good night. I'll talk to you guys soon. Definitely. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at the thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.